Welcome to the inaugural episode of Encounters, a podcast from the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm your host, Justin Logan. Today we're joined by Professor Klaus Rinn, the founding director of CSS and a professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. He's also the editor of the scholarly journal Humanitas and the author of numerous books. We're also joined by Bill Smith, managing director and senior research fellow Klaus Rinn, Bill Smith, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, Klaus, one of the things that I wanted to open with is you have a long record of publication uh, looking at more philosophical aspects of politics. And you came over a period of time to develop an interest in statesmanship and in, in U.S. foreign policy in particular. What animated that interest? Well, my interest had been focused on political philosophy in general, history of Western political thought, ethics and politics, uh, religion and politics, politics and culture. But I had always been interested in uh, specifically American political thought, especially developments in the post-war, uh, post-World, uh, Second World War era. And um, I was noticing something um, that intrigued me. And that was what I later came to call the emergence of <clears throat> democratism. That is the idea that democracy is the um, the form of government for which mankind has always been waiting. This is uh, the form of government that God smiles upon. This was an idea that was coming to the fore already in the 1970s, and I saw it as connected with a tendency among uh, political theorists first to think very ahistorically about uh, universal principles. That is, uh, I was more used to thinking historically and thinking within uh, the general tradition that um, Roman Catholicism has approved of. But what I noticed here was a new way of um, justifying American intervention uh, around the world. America was already inclined in an imperial direction, it seemed to me. But here was an emerging ideology that, posit that argued positively for, um, as it were, repurposing Cold War attitudes uh, to align them with an aspiration to make a better world. I later called this the new Jacobinism, uh, referring back to uh, something that looks very similar in the French Revolution, which was, of course, profoundly anti-traditional and specifically very anti-Christian. But be that as it may, the reason I became intrigued by this is that it seemed to me pretty obvious that the people who were advancing this new ideology, call it democratism, call it the new Jacobinism, or call it something else, that they were very likely, in short order, to become influential. They were well-placed in universities. They had very good contacts in the media world, in the press, um, among their leading spokesmen were people like Norman Podhoritz and his wife, Midge Dechter. Uh, Irving Kristol was another uh, big name, and I could rattle off a long list of names. And what was curious to me was that although it was 
it seemed to me obvious that this thinking would have particular implications for foreign policy and that these ideas would eventually become very influential in foreign policy thinking, the people specializing in international relations and national security and foreign policy seemingly were paying very little attention to it. It seems to me, seemed to me obvious that the import was very significant. And so I started studying it and putting these things together, started writing about it, but it was a very long time in coming. Uh, IR people, for some reason, were very slow to pick up on what was going on. And so I veered more and more in that direction to um, what? Bring the IR types who are supposed to be specialists up on something of high significance for them. It's fascinating. Bill, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, and it's sort of a common thread in many of Kloss's students, of which you were one, um, is an interest in the thought of a scholar that to, who to many may seem sort of obscure, Irving, Irving Babbitt. And you just wrote a book last year about Babbitt's work and its implications for the conduct of foreign policy and democracies. Can you say a little bit about uh, your interpretation of Babbitt's relevance to contemporary foreign policy? Well, thanks, Justin. Uh, Irving Babbitt, I consider to be like America's Aristotle. Um, he didn't write explicitly about foreign affairs, but he was writing about uh, literature, human nature, philosophy in the lead up to the Great War. So he he turned his attention towards how the West was cascading towards this terrible tragedy. Um, and he dug deep and he became a philosopher like a classical political philosopher. And he tried to ask questions like, what are human beings really like? And his answer was, realistically, there's a part of human nature that can be unleashed, which can try to dominate others. Um, all human beings have a will to power. They want to dominate others. They want to control others. And that's the real source of conflict among human beings. And, you know, that Plato had that phrase that's attributed to him, but it may not be him, that only the dead have seen the end of war. And I think Babbitt would, Babbitt would agree with that because there's always this thing lurking in human nature that can cause conflict, the dark side, the side that Thomas Hobbes concentrated on. Um, so what is the answer to questions of war and peace? One, well, first... I think you have to be realistic about this darker side of human nature. I'm an admirer of Machiavelli, not because I think we should use ruthless tactics in politics, but if you don't recognize that there this this potentiality, you're not going to be a very good statesman. Um, and we have contemporary versions of Machiavelli. You studied under John Mearsheimer at University of Chicago, and Mearsheimer is attacked by idealistic ideologues and utopians because he insists, well, power is really important in world politics. So I think if unless you pay attention to this darker side of human nature, uh, you're going to go go astray as a statesman. Um, but Babbitt basically said he was more optimistic in the sense that he said there's a part of human nature that can overcome this will to power. That all the great religious traditions have taught in Christianity, for example, you can conform your will to God's will. You can overcome a selfish will to power, and that. You can restrain yourselves from trying to dominate others. And that's the quality we need most in statesmen, this quality of restraint. You know, there are a lot of people now in contemporary international relations 
theory who say what we need is a policy of restraint. And I, I don't disagree with that. But I think I would insist that restraint is not a policy. It is a character trait. It's something that statesmen need to exhibit in order to carry out policies that exhibit restraint. So, uh, it, so Babbitt was insistent that is the quality of character in leaders is a decisive element in holding the balance between war and peace. That's great. And it um, it segues very neatly into the, the the next thing that I actually wanted to get uh, both of your takes on. And Bill, um, you, you talked a little bit about it um, already. But this, as you mentioned, the concept of restraint has become almost a buzzword lately in international relations um, with scholars calling for, you know, a pretty well articulated idea of a, a grand strategy of restraint. Barry Poston from MIT wrote a book by that name. Um, and we're obviously at the Catholic University of America, and Catholicism emphasizes restraint as central to a virtuous life, right? It, we can't just sort of be animated by uh, our various appetites. Um, so I wonder if there is, and, and you've hinted at this drawing on Babbitt's work, a connection between restraint in the person and restraint in the nation, right? How does individual restraint relate to foreign policy restraint, if at all? Well, thank you for that question. I uh, I thought a lot about this, um, and I, I thought about it in the context of the Iraq War, which I'll get back to. But you know, the the, the Catholic tradition on war and peace. Uh, one of the highlights of the Catholic tradition, of course, is the just war theory. And the just war theory, I, I, I'm worried, has devolved into this kind of arbitrary checklist of things that Catholic statesmen need to go through before they can launch a war or how they can behave in war. And that kind of legalistic approach gets away from what is the spirit of the just war theory. And the spirit of the just war theory is restrain yourself, check yourself, check your conscience, make sure you're not acting with arbitrariness, you're not acting to dominate others. That's the spirit of the just war theory. And I think that the, the church needs to reinvigorate the just war theory because it, it, it is a theory of restraint at its core. And, and let me just close by talking a little bit about the Iraq war. And, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war, St. John Paul II warned the United States that this was a war of aggression. This was going to lead to disaster. This, you can't go into a, a competing civilization and do this kind of thing. It's going to lead to disaster. And there were many conservative lay Catholics who are, were known as Orthodox Catholics who took the opposite position. Uh, and they pointed to the just war theory and said, oh, well, he's dangerous, he's a threat. And he che they checked the boxes of the just war theory and said, let's go in. And that turned out to be a terrible mistake. So uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, that the just war theory really needs to be reinvigorated. And that's one of the things I hope CSS can do and concentrate on. Klaus, did you have thoughts on the the sort of philosophical and, and, and theological uh, relation of restraint to foreign policy, uh, you know, picking up on that, not just just war theory, but including it and Catholic social thought generally. I think Bill commented um, in a very insightful way on that. Another way of saying much the same thing is to say that at bottom, all major problems are moral, spiritual problems. Um, relating that comment to uh, foreign policy, Suppose you want peace, and that is, as far as uh, the Catholic tradition is concerned, highly, highly desirable. 
what is going to be the source of that peace? There is only one possible source, and that is peaceful individuals. That is, if your characters are not peaceful, if you are uh, currently badgered by desires and passions that tear at you, um, if you are a victim of the passions of the moment, your greed, your will to dominate, and we could go through a long list of not very pretty human traits, you are not going to be contributing much to peace. You are going to be um, potentially belligerent, insistent on having your way. Well, that is not the Christian way. The Christian way is to examine conscience, to make sure that what you're about to do is in keeping not only with your own enlightened, prudent interest, but in keeping with a common good. The other side may have legitimate interests, and you have to consider them. So if you want to have peaceful, respectful relations among persons, among peoples, and among civilizations— you have to have a cultivation of a certain character type. If you do not have that, uh, enlightened self-interest, so-called, is not going to be able to manage uh, the passions of human beings, the ruthlessness, the cruelty of human beings. Um, And creating uh, the kind of character that is conducive to peace is not easy, given human nature. Uh, We have this uh, umbrella term for what is not so pretty in human beings, cardinal sin of pride. I mean, we tend to be prideful. And the framers of the U.S. Constitution took that for granted. And I think that international relations theory has to do far more than it has in the past uh, to address the question of how to deal with pride, the will to power. That is very, that's quintessentially American, but it's also quintessentially Christian. That's great. And Klaus, as this conversation has suggested already, um, to move from a little bit more uh, level of an abstract to a little bit more precise. So CSS is a relatively new organization in town and, and relatively distinct in the sense that it is not in the weeds, counting Iranian missiles uh, per se, or, or focusing that much on the sort of um, day-to-day dot and tittle of uh, um, you know what's in the newspaper, that is to say. It looks at, as you've mentioned, the more philosophical roots of foreign policy, right? How did we get to a place where we hold the beliefs that we hold about foreign policy? And one word that I've come to associate with you <laughs> specifically is the word upstream. Um, You use that a lot to talk about um, how you think, basically your theory of change in foreign policy is to sort of move upstream. And so to extend and maybe do violence to that metaphor, uh, who's putting chemicals in the water uh, and how can we stop them? That would require a very lengthy response. Who are putting, who are polluting the stream? Well, let me put it this way. Whenever policies are undertaken, whenever ideas are adopted, there is always implicit in those decisions a certain view of the world and a certain view of how human beings are going to react to what is being 
contemplated. Whether people recognize it or not, they have made sweeping assumptions about the consequences of their actions. They are also, even though they may be hiding it even from themselves, operating on certain motives, some of which may not be very pretty. So policies, policy orientations come from somewhere. Well, where they come from is a very large topic. Uh, I like to talk about the um, very strong influence that has been um, uh, exercised by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the French Jacobins. Now, he is a sort of a um, paradigmatic figure. I don't mean to say that he is behind everything, but he is a major representative of reimagining the world, reimagining human society, reimagining human beings. And he came up with the idea that there is no evil in human beings. If there's evil in the world, it, it, it attaches to um, poorly constructed institutions. They have infected human beings. So there's no need really to be on our guard against something like original sin, to be struggling with our, ourselves, to be examining our own consciences, and so on. He implanted the idea in Western human beings that that older, essentially Christian view of human nature was all wrong. The problem is not with us, ultimately. It is with the exterior. And let's remake that exterior. So if you're asking the question, what is behind, for example, the idea of social engineering, the idea of remaking the world according to a certain model, you have to trace that inclination back to a certain vision of what the world is like now and uh, what it ought to become. So if when you ask the question, who is polluting the water? Well, it's the people who fed us the very appealing and even flattering notion that there's no evil in us, uh, there's merely benevolence, and we're well equipped to remake the world for everybody. There's, there, there's a close connection, I would argue, between this belief in your own benevolence and the will to power. The will to power could not have a better justification than the belief that you are full of virtue. You are there to make the world safe for democracy. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and Bill, to sort of tie this back into some of the programming that we've done at CSS, um, this past year, uh, CSS inaugurated the Constitutional Fellows Program in association with the American Conservative Magazine. Um, and I think to some people, they may say, well, you're, you know, you're the center for the study of statesmanship. Uh, why a Constitutional Fellows Program? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that program, and in particular, how this broader idea of the constitutional personality, uh, tying back to, as, as Klaus was describing, this, this, the origins of restraint um, could, could produce a rebirth of statesmanship in the United States. 
Yeah, Justin, we got asked that question by a number of people when we launched the uh, Constitutional Fellows Program because uh, our original mission, and it's still our mission, is is to look at foreign policy questions, particularly from a deeper philosophical perspective. Uh, so the question is, were we off mission having a broader program that discussed the origins of the Constitution and the spirit of the Constitution? And I don't believe we were because when if you want to look at how American foreign policy has gone astray you need to understand how far it's gone astray from the spirit of the Constitution. That's the, the enormously important point in persuading people that maybe we should reconsider our, the direction. And what is the Constitution? The Constitution is really designed to check that person that's exhibiting the will to power. Consider it. They, it's not <clears throat> to, to bring out the popular will and, and impose the popular will on everyone. It's designed actually to check popular impulse, to instigate a kind of cooler reflection and make sure policy is not arbitrary and, and not, not that one faction, to use Madisonian language, is not dominating others uh, unfairly. And for, for this kind of constitution to operate, it implies a certain type of personality. It's the personality that, that accepts the fact that you can't always get your way. You must compromise. You must have a certain goodwill towards your opponents. You can't impose your will on them every time. You and and that, that's, that's the success of the Constitution is, is that you must have statesmen and, and an assumption of the Constitution is you must have statesmen that are measured, that are temperate. And, that, and that's why I think George Washington is considered the penultimate founding father, quote unquote, um, not because he was the most articulate, not because he wrote the Federalist Papers, but but in his public persona, he was the most self-controlled, the most open to compromise, the most willing to try to seek peace between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians. He was the he was the adult in the room who, who was most self-controlled. So when you recognize the Constitution requires this kind of compromise and goodwill, you also should notice how belligerent and uncompromising American foreign, American foreign policy has become in recent decades. Our leaders uh, seek uncompromising dominance over others. We are told, we tell other nations they have to act like us. And they have to act that way because we're better than them. We're more exceptional than they are. They must adopt our politics. They must embrace our traditions. And, you know, many other nations and particularly other civilizations don't accept this. They, they, they see the U.S. as a warlike imperial power that is, are trying to impose their will. And this is not what the Constitution recommends for, for statesmanship, both in domestic and foreign policy. And so the purpose of that this Constitutional Fellows Program, which I think is achieving some success, is to let people that revere the Constitution, congressional staff and others, understand how out of sync American foreign policy is with the original spirit of the Constitution. They, there's a tendency for constitutional conservatives to think of it as only as a domestic policy uh, spirit. But it is a foreign policy spirit also, and CSS hopes to bring that out with this program. That's great. One of the things I've always been fascinated by is the idea uh, that the balance of power as a sort of IR term can be read throughout 
the Constitution, throughout the Federalist Papers, throughout the writings of the Anti-Federalists. There was always a concern uh, with pitting power against power, uh, not because any particular aspect of power was maligned, but just because power itself was really dangerous and needed to be watched out uh, against. Klaus Rinn, Bill Smith, thank you so much for participating in the inaugural podcast. I'm Justin Logan, and thank you for tuning in to this inaugural episode. You can find Encounters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the website of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship, css.cua.edu. Thanks again, and we look forward to you tuning in next time.